everyone. I'm your guest host, Dean Aliotto. Your regular host, Martin Willis, made bail and was released from the hospital last week on his own recognizance and is doing much better. Um, before I tell you about our special guest, be sure to check out Charles Lear's new blog that cleans up an age-old conspiracy called Nixon Resigned Because He Saw a UFO. Uh, well, what can I say about my friend and our guest, Dave Foley, that hasn't been said about every other Canadian-American comedian actor who was in a cult classic series, Kids in the Hall, News Radio, and my daughter's favorite, Sky High. David Foley is uniquely all these things and a lot more, which we're about to find out shortly. Most impressive, however, is David's interest and take on the UFO alien phenomenon. So let's bring in Mr. David Foley. Hello. Hey, how are you? I'm very well, Dean. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. You're in New York, so we're, we're kind of bi-coastal right now. Yeah, it's very. I know it's the same. This this used to be something only major networks could do, live yeah. live broadcasts from coast to coast. We're this living in a, major, in, a, in a modern age. Yeah, this isn't a major uh, uh, newscast. Um, mm -hmm. Hey, so there's a few things that you said that we couldn't talk about. One of them was your rising sign. The other was your favorite BG, and mm -hmm. the other, the last one I think was whether or not oatmeal is the best way to start your day. But you will talk about UFOs, so unpack oh, that for me. Oh, okay. yeah. About UFOs. <laughs> yeah. Where Any should aliens? we start? Um, well, let's start from your first moment of interest, where you it, it kind of landed on your radar. Um, it, well, it, I think it was on my radar uh, farther back than my conscious memories, uh, because um, when I was a young lad in Canada, there, uh, there was a show on in the, uh, I guess it was, it was the late 60s, early 70s, called UFO. Uh, it was a terrible show if you, if you managed to see it now, but at the time it seemed fantastic. Uh, British show, um, uh, but an or a secret organization that was uh, battling UFOs on the planet Earth. Um, and so that was on, there was also a show starring Roy Thinnis called Invaders that I used to watch as a kid. And, you know, and then on top of that, I was also a big movie fan. So movies like uh, The Day the Earth Stood Still uh, had a big impact. And then, you know, and then a little older things like uh, Close Encounters. So I was interested in, in a pop culture sense. Um, and then uh, sort of became more, uh, I guess, more seriously interested in it around 97 when the Phoenix Lights incident happened. Mm -hmm. And and that kind of uh, that was one where I, I started going. I mean, I always thought it was a fun topic and interesting, but assumed most of it was just was just nonsense. Um, but then the Phoenix Lights seems like something where you went, uh, okay, this is really hard to dismiss, and the way that they're dismissing it uh, is really easy to dismiss. Um, you know the uh, the explanations that were being put forward at the time uh, by the government. And that were being swallowed, uh, you know, whole by the by the press, it just didn't make any sense. And it, it and that's where I first started really realize no, the the uh, the uh, the explanation that, that what people saw was a UFO simply makes more sense than any of the other explanations people are putting forward because everything else requires at least four or five steps of weird coincidences and bizarre misperceptions on the part of thousands of people. You know, you had to accept that, right? As as the basis for accepting this the the story the uh, the the prosaic story for what people saw in Phoenix, 
whereas uh, that they saw a UFO, you really just had to accept one thing, that thousands of people described the exact same thing, so probably that's what they saw. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting because everyone comes to it in different ways, different, um, sometimes different um, gateway drugs, um, but it seems like cinema is is uh, one of the main ones in that tv show especially ufo which looked like mike myers went back in time and did a spoof oh mike UFOs. was in, mike was influenced by it when he oh, was, was when, it? uh oh yeah the guy who was supposed to be the playboy character in the old ufo show was what kind of inspired austin powers uh yeah you know mike was inspired by these guys who back in that era in british television uh you you only knew they were sexy because people in the show kept telling you they were <laughs> Um, they were, you know, like middle-aged, overweight, badly dressed, horrible haircuts. These were the sexy fellows. In and those, that was kind of, that inspired Austin Powers. Yeah. in those onesies that they would wear. Yes. I love yeah. in the trailer, um, the opening credits, you're literally following on this woman's derriere for no reason. Mm-hmm. They just cut to it. Yeah. 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 Well, I guess he'd been working with puppets for so many years. The producer, uh, forget his name. But he was the oh. guy who produced Thunderbirds Are Go. Oh, I didn't know that. No kidding. Yeah, UFO was his first live action show. And, okay. Well, that uh, so so finally, yeah, finally. I mean, yeah. he'd been he'd been uh, sexually uh, uh, ogling, uh, you know, marionettes for so long. <laughs> so when he finally had a real woman on the, in front of his camera, he went crazy. There's only two states left where that's legal. Um, by yeah. the way. <laughs> yeah. um, so so you're watching these shows. And are you watching them as someone thinking that beyond this, when I go out at night and I look at the stars, there's something there. Are you thinking this thing is fun as entertainment? Is it a profound thought or? Well, I think it was mostly entertainment, but it was also um, as a kid who was also very interested in science, but with, but still getting D's in science class um, that, it was clearly just an unacceptable proposition that we were the only intelligent species in the in the universe. You know, it's just that's just it's just too much too much real estate. Um, and even as a child, I I understood that in something that big, if something happens once, it happens an almost infinite number of times. Right. Um, you know that uh, we, so we have that that n equals one example on on Earth, which means that. There is, uh, it's just mathematically uh, unacceptable uh, yeah. that there isn't a lot of other life and a lot of life that's a lot older than us and a lot smarter than us. Um, you're a fellow uh, on the spectrum dyslexic like myself. Yes. And um, I always attribute um, my interest in the stars and stuff um, with daydreaming because you're in class and you're not able to auditory wise really take in stuff. It's more visual for us, right? Yes. Yes. And so you're looking out the window, you're thinking about thoughts that have nothing to do with why you're there for, you know, eight hours. Yes. Your mind is wandering and uh, synthesizing like weird, um, disparate notions and synthesizing them into new ideas. And which, which, you know, it's what makes dyslexics, uh, very creative generally and very frustrating for, uh, for school teachers and parents. Yes, and parents <laughs> and yeah. spouses. Yes. Um, so for everyone really. There's really nobody that 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 uh, that doesn't find a dyslexic dyslexic to be a pain in the ass. 
except for other dyslexics. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm cool with your dyslexia. Um, so as you're getting older and, and you're, you know, starting to kind of form little things, it's kind of like along the way, it's, it's almost like you're on this um, trail and you start picking up things and going, oh, I like this. I'll put this in my pocket. I'll leave that. And one of the things you pick up in your pocket is comedy. So yes. I want to talk about kind of how you got into that and, and um, um, how that puts you on a trajectory that, uh, that led to this career that you've had this really great, fun career. Yeah. Well, I, part of that I attribute to dyslexia and ADHD as well. I mean, because both, uh, it's, it's that, uh, that, that inability to filter out what other people consider extraneous information uh, is kind of, I think, is one of the keys to being funny. And it's not like something you, 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 you learn. It's just that you, I think a lot of dyslexics just tend to notice things other people don't notice and, and organize ideas in, in a way that other people wouldn't think of. So, so it's, uh, you know, comedy's, comedy is surprise to a great extent. Um, so, uh, so as a kid, I was, I was always growing up, I, you know, we moved a lot. But whenever we would move, kind of being funny would be how I would manage to make some new friends and, you know, and uh, try to well, not really fit in, but at least get at least be able to talk to people and not uh, get your butt kicked on the first. day. Yeah. Yeah. So I was always uh, although oddly enough, as a kid, I was one of the bigger kids. I just stopped uh-huh. growing at a very early stage. <laughs> Picked yeah, early. I never really had to worry about getting my butt kicked. I was always one of the biggest kids around. Um yeah, I was like five seven in grade seven, you know. So oh, jeez. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the uh, but it was yeah, I was uh, I was always the funniest guy in my circle of friends, you know, wherever I moved and and uh, and that led to like in high school, it was actually a, fr- a friend on the bus going to school after I'd been making her laugh all the way to school, uh, said, "Oh, you should do stand up," and I'd, it had never occurred to me, and I went, "Oh, all right, I'll try." And that was the start of my comedy career. No way. So was that? Yeah, I, just, yeah, I said, oh, I'll perfect... see what I can write. <laughs> so it was your mother, not your mother encouraging you, it was someone else, and you figured. Yep, Evelyn Chapea. That's who it was. Evelyn, she thank said, you, you so much. Yeah. And, yes, uh, I'm thanking her yeah. as an audience. <laughs> yeah, and it really was. I went, oh, okay. And I, like, I'd always wanted to be a writer, but it never occurred to me to actually write stand-up or to be a comedian. So mm-hmm. I started writing monologues, started going downtown to Yuck Yucks uh, and doing open mics and uh, not bombing. In fact, doing quite well at it. So uh, that kind of led, led me. And then I started taking improv classes to improve the stand-up, and I met Kevin McDonald. And mm-hmm. that was when I was 19. Wow. And, uh, and then I quit stand-up because I liked working with Kevin more. And then the Kids <laughs> in the Hall started. Yeah, and that partnership is legendary. How you guys yeah, came together and folded in other people and the band just kind of like, hey, maybe we'll get a uh, rhythm guitar and we'll get uh, drums yeah. and keyboard. And and 40 years later, we're still doing it. Yeah. So you just had um, a series on Amazon, a, a new season, I should say. Yes. And so yeah, we what we're calling it season six. Amazon <laughs> calls it season one. Um, oh. Uh, but yeah, on Prime Video, we did eight new episodes of the Kids in the Hall show, which, which, uh, as I say, we set out as much as possible to make it feel like just a, a continuation from where we left off. And it does. Um, I watched it and um, binged you. it and thought it was hysterical and the humor and everything. 
that pocket of humor, which is a, you know, irreverent, edgy, and um, and surprising, as you said, at a left field, uh, mm -hmm. was there. Are, do you know if, if they're going to go in a second season or? Um, I haven't heard. We haven't heard anything from Amazon as yet, which I'm sure is a good sign. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, right. Because that's usually what happens. <laughs> right. <laughs> if they're really happy with the show, they go, "All right, everybody." Turn off the lights in the office. Everyone be quiet for six months. Don't let anyone know we're here. Yeah. We're still working. We just can't tell you. Yeah. Um, so um, coming back from, from that, so that happens, and you guys find your jam and you're going, and, and some of you splinter off, and you're doing shows. Um, uh, again, my daughter really loves Sky High. and You saw that oh, on repeat. It's a great movie. DVD. It really movie. is. Yeah, and a, and a great concept of... Yeah. You know, these superheroes and your character, which was a sidekick and now teaching, you know, mm -hmm. yes, Mr. This... Boy. Yeah. yeah. And, and Kurt <laughs> Russell is hilarious in it. He's really oh my God. He's so good at comedy. Yeah. He needs to be doing definitely more of those. Um, so all along this time, are you thinking about are you kind of an armchair enthusiast? of UFOs and ever you are you mentioning it to your castmates well, anyone well yeah no I was definitely interested in it I mean I was definitely interested uh back in you know again my interest took another jump back in 89 when George Knapp uh did his first interviews with Bob Lazar you mm -hmm. know and which is when we uh you know when the world first heard the term uh Area 51 and you know, <clears throat> and hearing those stories, it was, you know, it was pretty compelling and interesting. So that, that got me going. And then, of course, George, back around in that time, produced a series called UFOs, The Best Evidence, I think it was called. Yeah. Which was, was uh, which is one of the first sort of serious journalistic, uh, you know, uh, attempt, you know, attempts on television. Yeah. What was the Mike Farrell one? Oh, I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah, it's notorious because um, there's an interview in Silhouette, of course, where this guy claims that um, aliens prefer strawberry ice cream. Uh huh. And, and my thought at the time, because I'm lactose intolerant, was mm -hmm. all of them? There's not a few that go, <laughs> I'm going to get bloated. <laughs> I'm going to pass. Yeah. Can I do vanilla? Do I have to do strawberry every time? Yeah, I mean, there's several different species of aliens, so I'm told. And yeah. they all just like strawberry ice cream. It's that's see, that strains credulity. Yeah, and we have thirty-one flavors. So yeah, you know, come yeah. on. And strawberry's not the best. It is not. It's the one you eat when that's all that's left from the Neapolitan ice cream in the freezer. Then After you eat the, 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 you eat the strawberry stripe last. Yeah, <laughs> right. Oh my god, yeah. that's so true. Um, um, so um, so you go from oh uh, one thing I want to touch base on. I just heard recently. I don't know if you you anyone knows this. If you know it. Please chime in on the, the chat room. Um, Richard Doty, the infamous Richard Doty, I believe, was the person in silhouette on the Mike Farrell. Oh, really? Show. Oh, yeah. So we, we can thank that um, that uh, disinformation to yeah. uh, good old to Richard Dick. Doty, the, the creative mind of Richard Doty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And I guess he's now these days he's kind of trying to rehabilitate himself as a as a UFO person like uh uh me on on the side of disclosure isn't he no no i think he's kind of because he was you know one of the mirage men as they say yeah um you know working in conjunction with nsa greg bishop wrote a great book on it um 
I think it's it's um, I think it's just kind of like, well, he's the closest we're going to get, even though this guy basically caused someone to kill himself. Yeah, um, he's a monster. Yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. know why he's welcome. He's got that smile that he fixes to his face every time he goes out and everything. And now yeah. I'm going to be tapped for surveillance because of that comment. <laughs> yeah. You, t- you no, too. I mean, but he is. He is. He is. I mean, it, that's the, the thing. Uh, part of what I mean. I mean, I've had this conversation with uh, my friend uh, Jeremy Corbell. Never uh, heard of him. In the past, yeah. <laughs> and uh, about the fact that, um, to a great extent, uh, comedians sort of uh, played a pretty uh, effective role in the work of people like Doty um, in picking up the misinformation and picking up the uh, misinterpretation and the, the uh, mischaracterization of UFO experiencers. And right. running with it because for the cheap laugh, um, and so so I you know I feel like we you know everyone who sort of I like people talk a lot about disclosure and all that and I think the most to me one of the more important things is to try to undo some of the damage that the um, should I wait for this motorcycle to go past? Can sure. You hear it? <laughs> Excuse me. There we go. Um, but just the just the fact that people's lives, like like you know, obviously Doty deliberately drove a man to suicide. Um, but just so many people's lives have been damaged by seeing something that they couldn't explain, and then being marginalized and humiliated for talking about it. Right. And, you know, so if they did talk about it, their lives could be ruined, and if they didn't talk about it, their lives could be affected because they had this amazing thing they saw that they couldn't talk about. Yeah, well, there's um, in my upcoming um, three-part doc. There's a great um, bite that that I um, snatch of our interview that we did with you. Um, we were talking about how you know it was fodder, it was fair game, mm-hmm. and you started to kind of reflect on that and go, "Wow, did I, in some way, my contemporaries contribute to that mm-hmm. inadvertently?" We did. Oh, I think still, and even even going up to like the like even I think. Uh, I think like Saturday Night Live was still making snide jokes about uh, the New York Times article, you know, and still, you know, uh, you know, and basically if you go, I I think probably it would be easy to go through the history of UFO, major UFO sightings and then find uh, jokes being made about it on The Tonight Show or, you know, Merv Griffin or, you know, or any of the popular talk shows of the day. Yeah. uh, you, You know, you would hear the jokes. Uh, you know, basically saying whoever says they saw this are crazy. Yeah, and it's weird because um, we have acceptance and, and, a, and an agenda right now. At least that's what the government is telling us about not mm-hmm. ridiculing people who are reporting UFOs. But when it comes to experiencers, it's still that thing where, you know, if, if, if someone tells you that here was a craft that I saw and here's what happened, I was taken and went through these things and everything, it's horrific. And I have PTSD, which, by the way, you can't fake and you can actually see um, on uh, MRIs and 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 brain scans. Um, yeah. It's like if you were to say to someone, oh, really, in another context, oh, really, you're abducted. What what did the van look like? Oh, it was black. Uh-huh. And then was mm-hmm. there duct tape and rope in there? You'd mm-hmm. never do that. Yeah. But yet it's funny how everyone talks about duct tape and rope. That's funny. <laughs> you know, you, you don't. It's like, yeah, you'd that? be. Yeah, like that. Even yeah, the corroborating evidence is what is used to debunk you, right? 
the fact that other people have, seen, have had the same experience is part of how they debunk you, as opposed yeah. to going, that's what we normally call corroborative evidence. Yeah. All these people can't be having the same thing. Yeah. What? what? That's yeah, the whole Except point. that they're all coordinating to copy each other. Yeah. 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 Um, I have, um, it's funny, I, I, I don't know if you've, how many people that you've met that are experiencers. A, f- a few. Yeah. Yeah. And it always blows me away because, you know, I, I feel like I've been this kind of armchair enthusiast and, and moving more into the armchair, you know, researcher into this and hardcore. And I went to an experiencer support group mm-hmm. and that blew me away. I mean, it, yeah. it was, uh, I didn't expect to, to see the caliber of, of people, not that I expected to see something that wasn't that, but I, I didn't expect it to be, you know, hit with a room full of 15 people that have given talks at TED Talk, you know, supervisor, Homeland Security, a major in the army and lawyers, doctors, and all of them highly credible. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, and so um, I'm, you know, I, I, I feel like the people who are in the military who have seen UFOs have a seat at the table with the military and with others. Mm-hmm. But no one's created that space for the experiencers who may have the answers because they're the ones that are, you know, front yeah. of the line. They've interacted. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's weird because, and even I know that I, I was reluctant to take the, you know, the experiencer story or the abductee story, as, as we used to call it, um, as seriously. And I think just because it was, um, I, I guess I try, I, I guess like a lot of people, tried to sort of be a nuts and bolts guy about this and go, well, I'm looking at the data and that's what it said. You know, there's a lot of data that you can't deny and a lot of credible reports and a lot of, you know, you know, uh, uh, corroborating evidence from radar and multiple sightings and, you know, skilled observers. And, and but then the abductee thing, you sort of go, I don't want to know about that. It's just too <laughs> weird. And you kind of just push it out of your head. But it's it's just... At a certain point, you kind of go, well, if I accept that these craft are here, wherever they're from, even if they're from here, uh, but, you know, from a different here, um, but if I accept that they're real, it makes no logical sense to reject the experiencer stories because if these craft are here and they're piloted by beings that are that much more advanced than we are, and they have to be... um, it would be ludicrous for us not to be being abducted. Well, if you if you kind of um, uh, stretch out mankind, mm-hmm. and we look at the past, where we go and capture, tag, we knock them out, we tranquilize, mm-hmm. you know, animals and stuff, and, and do this yeah. for their own good and our own good. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it would make sense that you know we would maybe do that down the road. You know, once, yeah. once we get to that place. Um, but it um, it just kind of feels like I don't understand why people who do believe in, in, in UFOs are totally cool with the concept that they're coming by in these crafts, different shapes and sizes, because all mm-hmm. of our cars don't come in the same shape. And they wouldn't think that they would, you know, pull over, stretch yeah. their legs, maybe yeah. do something else. <laughs> Walk around, do some studies, yeah. gather some data. Um, right. Yeah. That the yeah, or just even the notion that they would have some reason for being here, um, yeah. you know, the idea that they would be here and not have some uh, agenda is is harder to believe than that they do have one. Right. 
Um, now, the last time we spoke, you were leaning towards, and I'm curious if you're still um, in that lane, because there's so many different lanes of, of the phenomenon. Mm. You know, we've got the um, Dr. Michael Masters, they're us from the future, and then we have mm -hmm. interdimensional. Um, and you seem to be kind of planting your flag in the virtue or the um, simulated reality hypothesis, the Nick Bostrom. Um, well, it's, it's, it's one, it's more just one that I can't, I can't think of a good way to dismiss. And I wish I could, uh, cause it, I started, um, started looking, uh, it was a number of things. I was also thinking about thinking a lot about consciousness and thinking about, um, uh, consciousness after death, um, thinking about things like ghost phenomenon and, you know, reincarnation. And I remember reading Leslie Kane's book um, and really and starting really starting to think, you know, because I'm an atheist, so I've always believed that, our, you know, that the universe collapses into nothingness when our brain stops, uh, you know, as far as you, the individual is concerned, that all, all uh, you know, that everything uh, ceases. Um but then, really, like reading Leslie's book, and I also read some other stuff about reincarnation, and started thinking, well, maybe there is something to consciousness, you know. And this is also something called the uh, Princeton uh, Global Consciousness Project, where they basically mapped the effects of consciousness outside the body and how it affects, how it can be, how it can, like affect, uh, like, uh, what is it, like, uh, what do they call random number generators mm -hmm. outside of. Uh, and just be, by paying attention to them, you could affect random number generators and make them stop being random. And so, so I think, well, all right, well, maybe consciousness can exist outside the brain. But I, then I thought, but but maybe that still ceases uh, when we die. And then you know, talking about thinking about things like ghosts and reincarnation, I thought, well, maybe that, maybe you know, maybe there is some sort of persistence after death. And then and then Nick Bostrom came along and wrecked it because because <laughs> uh, the simulation theory. Uh, makes almost everything uh, about almost all paranormal and um, uh, religious experience uh, uh, makes almost all of it uh, suddenly explicable. Uh, and explicable is basically that the par uh, paranormal, I think, are really just data compression errors in a simulation if it's a simulation so uh and it's funny actually after thinking about it, i actually heard nick bostrom say well if you were to look for evidence of it being a simulation you might look for things like uh a sense of past lives um and as you know because i started thinking well i guess you would if you were creating a simulation unless you were to create a universe-sized simulation which is pointless because then you're creating a universe you've right. got to compress and and one of the things i thought well okay well things like the the wave function in quantum physics makes a lot more sense if it's a simulation and you're running parallel parallel programs parallel pro processing and you're you know running multiple programs at the same time uh so wave function makes sense uh past lives make sense because you would create uh, uh conscious entities in your program but uh when they'd run their course within the program you'd recycle them you would take mm. take the program Take the essential, the, the the entity, wipe it of its memories, and then reuse it, because uh, it'd be a way to save space. But sometimes the 
the entity might not get wiped properly. So it might carry some memories into the, into the next uh, cycle. And so that would be perceived by the entity as uh, having had a past life. Like a corrupt file where you're seeing yeah. some of the other. Okay. Yeah. So, so everything makes, everything starts to make more sense. Um, if the simulation is real and, and also the, you know, the mathematical uh, proposition that, that if, uh, that if one simulation is ever created, then the likelihood is that, uh, it's very unlikely that anyone, the, the majority of, of conscious beings in the universe the majority of them are most likely in a simulation because there would be vastly more simulations than original universes. Right. Which, boy, that's the deepest rabbit hole, I think, of all. I mean, yeah. when you ask uh, Nick, I got a chance to talk to him and, and, and was saying, is this like, are you saying this is kind of a um, symbolic symbolism when you say that there's aliens um, that, that have created this? for whatever reason, is that just kind of like an, you know, an allegory or something? And he says, no, no, no. It's, I'm saying literally that there are extraterrestrials that are come here. They're extraterrestrials in the sense that they're all powerful and created this thing as we know the world and everything. And, mm -hmm. um, and that we're living that and all of us trying to figure out what happens. I always wonder what happens if someone figures out how to get to the princess and skip all the <laughs> different well, levels, the do they get taken out? Yeah. Well, here's the thing that I, occurred to me that I haven't heard Nick Bostrom address, so I don't know if, he's, if it's anyone suggested it, is that um, if we're in a simulation, the likelihood is that the simulation wasn't created uh, about us at all. Um, you know, and it's not, it's not, I don't think it's an ancestor simulation, and I don't think it's a game. Because I think the the uh, our, I think it's probably more like like Donald Hoffman, his theories about reality. He's been running these uh, evolutionary simulations in his computer, right? And uh, so he creates very rudimentary entities that have very few goals and, and 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 possible choices, and they evolve over thousands and thousands of generations to appear to have intelligence or mm -hmm. appear to have like. Uh, uh, make, be making choices that are guided by some sort of intelligence, right? right. And it's all just done in an evolutionary model. Um, so those are the kind of models we create. Um, so probably the model we're in was created for the same reason. We create models to solve problems, to run simulations, to solve problems that are important to the people running the program. And if you're running an evolutionary model, things are going to occur within it that you have no interest in at all, that have nothing to do with this problem you're solving. And that could be us. Right. We could be just a tangential thing that got created by these, this universe simulation. But what the people who created the program are interested in is on the other side of the universe and has nothing to do with us. Right. Or it's some guy in his basement yeah, figuring out what I'm we're going to do for that day. Yeah, but I'm just saying whoever ran that program might never even notice that we're in it. Because it's just gone and had a life of its own. Well, they, they might not be interested in that part of the data. That's depressing, man. You know, that, that, I mean, if you've created a, a simulation of an entire universe, um, yeah, what, you're not going to care about everything that happens in that universe. 
No. You're going to care about you're going to care about the problem you set out to solve. Okay, I don't even care. I don't care about this interview. I don't care about anything. This is depressing. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> but so I do care about our listeners' questions. Oh yes. Oh, they have I questions. Oh, I do. Oh, I see them down here now. Yeah. So let's uh, go ahead and take this first one because I always love settling an argument between friends. There's nothing more oh. loving than that. Can we can we settle that? Do I get to decide? You do. Um, I, well, I've always well, I've always been a, 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 a cryptozoology skeptic, I guess. Um, but again, I always, I never. I never dismiss anything that has that persists in a cult, in culture or multiple cultures. You know, that's why, I, like I, I'm like I. Even though I never believed we have souls, I still believe that there's something to the ghost phenomenon because it's such a part of human history and human culture. Every culture has ghost stories. Every, you know, they're, they're in Shakespeare. They're everywhere. So probably, and I know people. I've ex- I have had a ghost experience as a kid, and I know many other really sensible people who have had ghost experiences. So Sasquatches, I don't know. Um, I I know that probably ninety percent of the people involved in the Sasquatch research are not uh, not sensible people, um, and mm-hmm. a okay. lot of the the I think a lot of the evidence for it isn't isn't very good. But then again, there's there's as I understand some stuff that it, that is pretty good and pretty confusing, and 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 the fact that that these sort of uh, hominid uh, stories of these hominid creatures seem to be so pervasive is uh, interesting. Yeah, it's it's strange because I when I was a kid, I was all into Bigfoot, um, Bermuda Triangle, Loch Ness. Yeah, me too. And so it just felt like all that got folded in. And then later on, I was started separating my toys, you know, my mm. my um, my phenomenons, let's say. Yeah. And and that one didn't fare too well. But when I talked to like um Greg Bishop or, you know, Robbie Graham and, and Jacques is also uh, Jacques Vallée, a big proponent of this. A lot of them um, don't trust some reports uh, or a lot of reports unless there is a, a, a bit of high strangeness. Mm-hmm. And that would definitely, uh, you know, Bigfoot, a Sasquatch, uh, hairy animal would fit into nicely. Into yes. High strangeness. Or the, yeah. Or the um, the bipedal seven foot tall bipedal wolves from from Skinwalker Ranch. Mm-hmm. You know that you know, uh, and I'm you know, uh, the people who have claimed to have seen those are pretty credible people, and so yeah, yeah the, the link, and that's the thing is it's that link between, uh, you know, um, poltergeist and ghost phenomena, uh, cryptids, and UFOs. It does seem like more and more there's an overlap going on there you know and and again again if if nick bostrom's right it all makes sense yeah because you can just get bleed through from previous programs it's kind of like the 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 universal uh like the string theory where we're trying to have a universal theory for everything and and nick might be our our savior if you really need that in your life yeah it's a very dissatisfying it is it, it's, it just it but closes it, it the loop. it makes so much sense. But it yeah. makes. But again, as I said, quantum. When I hear about quantum mechanics, uh, it makes no sense to me, except as part of a as a simulation. Then it makes sense. Right. All the weirdness of it, and all of the stuff that where where quantum physicists basically just have to go. Well, it seems like it's happening, so we just have to pretend we know why it's happening. We're just going to smooth smooth off that edge a little bit. 
Yeah. So um, Cali Kid 213, he wants mm -hmm. to know, could UFOs be some sort of glitch repair program? Yeah, it could be. I mean, if it's, as I said, I think, as I said, so many things could just be glitches in the program. It could be a repair program. It could be, uh, it could be a, a, a form of data retrieval. Uh, you know, maybe it's the mechanism. Maybe it's like a bot that the programmers put in to go through and comb for, for certain patterns of information. You know, maybe that's it. So Game of, Game of Thrones, the finale, maybe that was a glitch? Well, let's, an I, example. I never watched it, but let's hope so. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have a question real quickly before we get to Mary Grace Kirby. This comes um, from my brother or my nephew, and they want to know when you, you were following. You should know by now if it's your brother or your nephew. My mother won't One of them. Me. Did you grow up with him? If it's so, it's your brother. If I he came along so, later, it might be your nephew. He was in one of the bedrooms. All right. One of the bedrooms. Um, so the question is, you were following the Phoenix Lights. Yes. Um, do you know about the Kurt Russell connection? To the Phoenix Lights? Yes. Uh, oh, wait a minute. I, I just heard about this recently that he was a because he's a pilot, right? Yep. And he was actually flying during the Phoenix Lights? Yeah. And, and by the way, I have to back up and say it. It wasn't my brother and it wasn't the nephew. It was my my brother's brother-in-law, my brother's right. sister's brother. I'm glad okay, we, now we can we move can on. So, we can sort out that totally <laughs> unimportant detail. Complete trivial BS. Um, so here's what I remember from the Kurt Russell story. Uh, right. He's flying in around the time that this is happening, the Phoenix Lights, 1997. And his son, I think it was Wyatt, um, sees some strangeness in the sky and says, you know, hey, dad, do you see this? And he looks over and he sees this and it is strange. And he acknowledges as this is not normal. And he's been flying. He's a pilot, Kurt Russell. Uh, they got their own you know, little plane for mm -hmm. a very long time. And he reports it. He calls it in and says, hey, you know, we're seeing this. Are you, you know, he's talking to um, the uh, air traffic controllers and saying, are you seeing this? Are you clocking this? Um, I would love to get that recording of oh my him. God, yeah, that that would be gold. But um, yeah, so um, I, I love that. So it's I nice. wish I'd known that when I was working with Kurt. That would have been fun to ask him about. You could drop that on him and say, hey, yeah. come over here. <laughs> Put mm -hmm. the donut down at craft service. I have to know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, all right, we can go back to the question. If you want to bring that up, there it is. Ghost story. Oh, my ghost story. Well, I was, I, oh, yeah, I, it's, it was one time, lived in a brand new bungalow in Antigonish, Nova Scotia. And that, but we'd had a few weird things at the house. Um, like I know at one point my brother came home late at night and heard people playing ping pong in the basement and opened the basement door and all the lights were out. Um, and uh, but also in that house, uh, one night I was in bed and I and uh, there was a, a girl at my the in at the uh, at my bedroom door and I thought it was my sister. Uh, she had long hair and sort of uh, braids and was wearing like a, a bibbed dress with the puff shoulders which this is 1971 so that's how everyone dressed in 1971 <laughs> right uh like pioneer girls um <laughs> it was very common and and i went you know karen and uh and this girl floated across the room to the, the foot of my bed and smiled at me and then faded away and uh, so that's my one ghost experience. Um, okay. So I'm going to yeah. ask you, 
what is your definition then of ghosts if you're saying that that you you're not sure that there's a soul or spirits what, what are spirits then when you see well i don't know i mean that's the thing it's um for me um I'm open to the idea that there could that there could be some other rational explanation. I remember there was a great there's a CBC radio show called Ideas, and years ago, more than 20 years ago, I think, they did an episode on um, on ghosts and the science of ghosts, and they looked at things like standing waves that can uh, resonate um, at the at, that can that can match the resonant frequency of the human eye, and can cause visual hallucinations. Um, you know, so there are things like that that can explain some things. Uh, but even in that special, they said, but the fact that the fact that um, something can cause a ghost-like experience in no way discounts the possibility that ghosts <laughs> exist. That, right. that, that something can be similar, an experience that can be similar to a ghost um, doesn't uh, dismiss the idea of an actual ghost, which is, I think, the sort of thing that Mick West doesn't understand. Is that There's a lot creating of creating a, a a perhaps reasonable facsimile of an event doesn't yeah. deny the event itself. Yeah. Well, there's you know there's skeptics, there's debunkers, um, and I always was having trouble finding you know labeling myself, branding myself. What what am I in? And and um, I, I guess analyst is the best. Mm -hmm. We look at the data. Yeah. and go from there but we're not going to accept something face value so if i hear that there's you know peruvian uh, giants that are 15 feet tall i say yeah can i see them at the smithsonian if yeah. not my my bias is always that life is probably more boring than i want it to be um so that that leads me to be a skeptic so yeah. like i so i don't you know i don't leap at that um at uh, incidents and go, oh, there, there, that's exact, that proves everything. But some things you go, well, that asks a lot of questions that can't be answered. Right. You know, and the, you know, there's the, the prosaic answers. When the prosaic answers are more complex than the extraordinary answer. Yeah. Then probably, then you got to kind of look at the, the uh, extraordinary answer as possibly being the true one. Yeah. After you m move past the Auckland Razor. Um, yeah. The other thing is that sometimes people will say, well, ghosts are um, what you're seeing is a residual of an event that happened that was maybe so volatile or, or emotional during that period. And so we just happen to see this recorder playing this over. Yeah, I've heard that theory, but that theory is no less extraordinary than the idea that a soul is left behind. Good point. Because if you're going to believe that inanimate <laughs> objects carry a, some sort of a recording ability, yeah. uh, you know, that houses and buildings and, and trees and the grass can, can record events, yeah. then, then, uh, then you're not really, uh, you know, you're not far off just saying, oh, it's a ghost. Right. <laughs> no. And then when you conflate the two, which you can, because in a lot of reports, people have said that they've seen spirits, you know, deceased loved ones on these crafts when they're taken. Yeah, And so that is where I really get confused because you're basically saying, because a lot of people say, well, the aliens, these uh, other, the others, the visitors, as Whitley Strieber calls them, can change and can make you see this. They're like tricksters. And yeah. so if they're, and they do it to make you feel comfortable because it's like, oh, here's old granny. She's here, my mammy. Yeah. Or you've got, um, 
you know, oh, that well, if you if you subscribe to that, then you have to subscribe to the fact that if they can control that. Why don't they make the little grays or the mantis not look so little gray and not so mantis and have them look like, you know, your favorite celebrity or something? Yeah. Um, so it doesn't and, work both ways. Well, there you there is an, an argument for that, which is that you would create something that is relatable but alien because you want people to have an acceptable framework uh, for their minds to grasp it. So it's so, okay that you're seeing these creatures because, you know, yeah. uh, so you, anti yeah, so, June is here. Yeah, but also the, the you, you present as greys or mantids because you're presenting in a framework of reality that human beings can, can digest. Right. You know, but you're creating enough strangeness about the reality that they can also start to digest the idea of aliens who may be <laughs> vastly weirder than what we're perceiving, but they're giving us a version that's just weird enough that we can be nudged along, you know, into accepting the reality without yeah. being totally freaked out by something that our minds just can't comprehend. Right. Um, so the thing that I'm really kind of excited about, I called you from the airport a few days ago when I said, Hey, do you want to come on the show? Um, got some ideas of things we can talk about. And you mentioned, Oh, we can talk about my first sighting that I comparatively recently had with Jeremy mm -hmm. Corbell. And I said, yes. do not tell me <laughs> I want to hear it fresh as the audience is hearing it. So let's, let's do this. Let's go there. Yeah, it was. Uh, and first off, I got to say, a part of me is really dis is would rather I hadn't had this experience because I liked being, uh, I like the intellectual detachment of having not seen anything, of only <laughs> caring about the data, you know, only looking at the uh, the uh, the accounts and the uh, corroborating evidence. Um, so so finally seeing something, uh, that all goes out the window. Uh, now I'm invested. Um, but yeah, there was a night in January, I forget, I think it was like January 12th or something like that. I was out visiting Jeremy Corbell and I'm sure most of your, uh, viewers and listeners probably know Jeremy. He's the, he, he, uh, directed the film, uh, Bob Lazar, Area 51 and the Flying Saucers and has been releasing, uh, some of the, some of the most sort of provocative, uh, video evidence he and George Knapp. Yeah. yeah. And he and, he and George Knapp have been putting out a lot of the a lot of the videos that have been since declassified by the uh, by the Pentagon. Um, so and Jeremy had also had you know was frustrated that he had been you know dedicated his life to the subject but had never seen anything himself either. And one night uh, I was out visiting Jeremy and we were out just walking his dog late at night in the countryside on a very. Uh, you know, very, very, very clear, starry night. And it was like we were, we were out. And, and at one point I was watching the, the, the commercial jet traffic in the distance uh, going back and forth. And it was such a clear night. And I, and I just sort of said, you know, Jeremy, this would be a really good night to see something. No. <laughs> yeah. And uh, within five minutes, uh, Jeremy goes, Dave, turn around. And I turn around, and uh, off on the horizon, basically the same direction that I'd been watching the commercial traffic, uh, there was this really bright object. You know, still, I could still see all of the commercial traffic 
in the background, all the stars in the background. And, um, but the, uh, this object was sort of an orange, an orangey golden glowing object. And on the front of it were three white lights, or at least what we assume was the front because that was the side that was coming towards us. Um, it could have been backing up. I don't know. Um, I didn't hear a beeping sound. Uh, yeah, but so, and we watched it at a distance and all the time we're watching it, I kept thinking, uh, all right, as this gets closer, it's going to resolve itself into something boring. Uh, you know, I just have to let it get closer and, um, and, uh, but it kept getting closer and closer and it just kept getting weirder and weirder. Um, and, and one of the interesting, really interesting, and this is going back to the idea of, of uh, your consciousness not being in your control, is that as it got closer and closer, um, and I didn't really think about this till after it was over, but, but neither Jeremy or I was getting, uh, neither of us uh, were getting excited or commenting about what we were seeing. Um, except at one point, Jeremy said, sort of unprompted, he goes, I'm not even going to try to take a picture of it. Which, in my head, I thought, that's a weird thing to say. And especially because this is what you've dedicated your life to. And, but, I, but, I sort of just, but again, I didn't respond to that either. And I just kept watching this thing as it got closer and closer. And it sort of, it sort of described like a, a, a semicircle above the horizon. Uh, and we were like in a mountain valley. So the mountains were fairly close by. So the horizon was very close by. And it, uh, and it came across, and then it just sort of hovered over the mountains for a while when it got closer to us. And we're, so we were able to really watch it and get, look at, see all the details of it. And I, I, I posted a, a, a drawing of it on, uh, on t Twitter and on, on Instagram a while back. Um, but so, and, and so it hung there, and, there was, and it was... The body of it was orangey golden, and it was like glowing. It would like pulse with light. The body of it, and the light, the white lights on the front of it would also pulse at a different uh, rate in the on the front. And and after a while, it just descended behind the mountains. And only after it had descended behind the mountains, then Jeremy went, "Dude, we just saw a UFO." And it was only <laughs> after it was gone that either of us commented on it and and it was a weird sensation because the the weirdest thing about it as weird as the seeing it was was one thing and i, and I think it was about the size of like a greyhound bus or an 18 wheeler um and and again all the time we could see the stars behind it and other air you know commercial traffic in the distance there was nothing we weren't seeing a part of a larger thing because mm -hmm. we could see all the sky around it and, but the weirdest part was that our emotional response to it, there it is, that's the, oh, that's wow. the drawing, uh, which I did a day later on my iPad. And, uh, and that's exactly what it looked like. And here's another weird thing. Uh, I can't draw. I like really cannot draw at all. And I did this with a program I'd never used before. And I was able to find all the tools I needed immediately to draw this. Wow. And, but, but as we were experiencing it, we were having no emotional response to it at all. Like both of us, nothing. Completely calm, completely just 
just watching it. And even since it happened, I still have the same sensation that my emotional connection to the event is dampened. Uh, and it was, so the, if, it, it felt like the object we were observing was controlling our response to it. Wow. And continues to control our response to it. So I have two questions right away. Sure. Um, did it make any sound? I'm guessing it was no sound silent. at all. Completely silent. Um, you're outside. Yeah. This, is, this is nighttime. Yep. You're hearing crickets. Did that stop? Um, not that I not that I can recall. I wasn't aware of of any other sounds stopping. Hmm. Um, yeah, wasn't aware. I I didn't notice anyway. I don't know if Jeremy noticed anything, but I I didn't notice. It's it's interesting because um, James Fox had his own sighting in his backyard. Sorry, a um, an orange uh, orb, and mm -hmm. in his brain he went, "I could go and get my my phone right now and and record this," but I'm not. Yeah. I mean, he's a filmmaker who <laughs> he specializes yes. in this, and he's like, "I'm gonna just have this moment." And it sounds like Jeremy was there going, this moment is, is for us. It's not for anyone else. Sometimes it's just that individual thing. Yeah. And it was, as I said, I, it, I talked to Jeremy about it a little while ago, and I said I, it felt like we were basically being told to, to just, just stay calm and pay attention. Right. I'm going to pause here, and we are signing off from KGRA right oh, now. Right. Um, and remember, everyone, Patreon. Please um, send in if you can um, and um, for the program and, and Martin Willis. And uh, also, um, I want to say big shout out to the International UFO Congress Convention, which is still going on. So grab those tickets, folks. We'll continue our um, interview here and it'll be on uh, YouTube and it's a longer version. So you can always click over there. Um, so let's uh, continue here. So when you look back on this, and you've mm -hmm. drawn it. Were you compelled to draw it? Like you had to draw it? Like yeah, a, it was a, the next the next day. I just decided I needed to draw it. And uh, as I said, I can't I can't draw anything. But I was actually able to get the the sort of the the color, the tone of it, the texture of it. You know, the, the kind of hazy quality it had. Uh, the way the lights were arranged in the front. The way the front was sort of felt carved out a little bit you know i was able to get all of that in this drawing and uh you know and sent it you know to uh to jeremy right away and mm. jeremy went oh my god that's it that's exactly what it was that's what i saw that's you know there was like <laughs> we should have had jeremy do his own version and then see you guys bring them together and like yeah. a real skull and <laughs> and as, as I said, there's things like uh, just the fact that I was able to do to do a really accurate drawing of what we saw yeah. doesn't make sense. Well, it's interesting because I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, oh, we had someone do this because you have like lens flares mm -hmm. in the words flaring out. Yeah. So it's not just this crude, oh, I'm using, you know, the computer to draw this. Um, it, it feels like there's some dimension uh, yeah. to it. Oh, I know. And I remember as I was doing it, I was like shaving the sides down and changing the, the shading a little bit and, you know, and using tools to sort of shape, get the shape and the perspective of it. Cause that was kind of the, 
it was, that's even like the angle we were viewing it at, that it was kind of in this three-quarter position to us. And it's and moving. slightly tilted forward. And goes past you. So that's what that looked like. So that's the front of yeah. it. Yeah. So it came, it came from, I'd say, like, like um, I would describe it as coming from like a, like a two o'clock position in the sky and circling around us to about a seven o'clock position in the sky. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but as it, as it came closer to us, it held, kept, it held this sort of three-quarter angle that I drew. Um, so that you, so that we could see the front of it, but we could also see the shape of it really clearly. A little bit of the side. Yeah. Yeah. So I had a three quarter view of it, which is, which is the view they want you to have in your, you know, in your passport. Um, yeah. Um, we have a question here. Sure. Uh, Dave, I need to ask if simulation theory is true, then what is it simulating? I don't guess I don't have to read these cause people can see them. Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> well, I read. well, well, here's my, my question i mean i don't know anything but but the thing i'm curious about is and the thing as i said the thing that appeals maybe we talked about earlier is that i'm assuming that the simulation is was created for the same reason we create simulations which is to solve problems that's the main reason we create models computer models it's not for uh, you know i mean video games are a market so you create so you create simulations for that as well but most of the the models that are made on very powerful computers are made to model things like weather patterns or uh, you know the big bang um you know or various phenomena in in cosmology um and you know and it's you know it's how we figured out that 95 percent of the universe is missing is by running models um right. so i'm assuming that whoever created if we're in a simulation, whoever created the simulation was trying, was created it to solve specific problems. And perhaps it's a simulation that they can use and reuse and run to solve various different problems. And, I, and again, I, I think it's, it's in, most likely that uh, the simulation isn't about us at all. I mean, the simulation is a simulation of an entire universe. So we're no more likely, it's no more likely that we are the central uh, issue in the simulation than that there is a God that created an entire universe just for one stupid species on a really nondescript and uh, unspectacular planet. Okay, clearly you're a heretic. Um, We're going to move on to the next question now. Um, I'm going to read these for the people who are just listening to the, the audio. Um, this is by mostly oh, well, space. I gotta say this. Yeah. That, oh, I'm going to answer this. Yeah. The simulation. Oh, can I answer this one? Uh, yes. Yeah, there let would me read be it out. Re- just, oh, sure. Sorry. Just so the, because there's, there's an audience that's just listening to the podcast. That's true. So, yeah. Yeah. So thank you, Martin, for cueing me on that. Um, for Dave, as for simulation theory, is it, uh, if it's accurate, uh, wouldn't it be based, based reality would be based reality still to be the real conundrum. Hmm. An alternative model might be one where consciousness itself is fundamental, underlining reality. Well, that's uh, Donald Hoffman's theory, that the fundamental unit of existence is consciousness. Um, But I think, um, yeah, there would be a base reality, but it would be so vastly outnumbered by simulations that the likelihood of any uh, conscious being being in a base reality would be overwhelmed 
by the likelihood, by the just sheer mathematical likelihood that you're in a in a simulation. And basically, the, the notion, is, I think, if, the way Nick Bostrom put it, is that it, that if we accept even a, a an example of one simulation existing, and we're and we're in, we can even look at our own culture and look that we're getting closer and closer and closer to creating one. Um, that uh, that if, if one is possible, then then endless billions is likely. Uh-huh. So it's that that thing, you know. It's like that. How likely are you to be living in the middle of time? Not very, you know. Um, and you, how likely are you to be in the one real reality? Very unlikely if simulations exist. Yeah, the problem that I have with simulation reality is that it it basically is is if you're saying that there is someone who is creating this reality, right? Mm-hmm, pardon? Who's if there if someone has created this reality that we're in? Yeah, that to me denotes that it doesn't. There's a possibility that it doesn't stop there. Has someone created them to be creating this reality? Well, uh, oh, you would definitely wind up with realities within realities. You would wind up with with uh, with simulations within simulations uh, if you allow if you if you run your simulation as an evolutionary model, mm-hmm. where you don't control the parameters of it. And let's face it, that's that's where all of our human computing is going is you know into the realm of AI where no one programmed the AI systems that exist today. No human programmed them. Um, the best that we can do right now is, is to struggle to try and keep up with what the programs are capable of. But no one knows the underlying code in any of the huge language models, you know, language-based models that exist right now. No one, no one, no one has that information anymore. What do you mean by that? Like they that lost the code, it or it's being created the, by the, computers? The AI, the, that the uh, AI, uh, the neural networks in the AI, have been writing their own code for m- like some of them thousands of generations um, of code, where where the the program itself is writing itself. So the programmers who created the original models have no idea what's in the what's in the code anymore, because they've left the room to get some hot pockets. Yeah. They've, you know, it was just, it was too much work. You let yeah. the AI write its own code at a certain point. Humans aren't fast enough. This is from Mike Meyer, not to be confused with uh, Mike Myers from uh, Halloween. Um, mm-hmm. My favorite kid I grew up watching. Um, oh, he's saying, I guess he's saying my favorite kid. Maybe that's you. I that's grew up me, watching you guys on CBC and reading that's books Canadian on UFOs and other, yeah, other mysteries. Love you, Dave. Oh, that's not so much a question. It's just a compliment. Thank you, Mike. Yeah, <laughs> that's nice. And here's from uh, Claudio Pixels again. Dave, how do you balance the degree to which the UFO community both utilizes and distances itself from information that comes from the government? How do you tell what's good info and bad info? Boy, that's the big question. Um, well, I think it's with anything else, you have to you, you calibrate it based on sources that are credible and corroboration of evidence um and you know and um i'd say a blanket mistrust of government is as pointless as a blanket dismissal of the phenomenon um and is and is unfounded uh you know yes government does lie a lot yes government does keep a lot of secrets 
but uh, government is not wholly an evil creation. It is a creation of humans, you know, arguably for humans. Uh, and, you know, but people do make weird decisions once they have power. But I think, uh, yeah, those people that think everything is misinformation coming from the government and every, you know, that every revelation is just uh, the government trying to, you know, when people go on, like when people go on and on about this is, they're creating this threat, this threat scenario in order to pump up military funding. Flag, uh, what is it called? Uh, yeah, false flag. False flag. Yeah. And that's just uh, ridiculous because there's really no need. There's no need at all to create a UFO story to pump up military funding in the United States of America. Um, uh, because uh, I don't know if as an outsider to America... Uh, I I can tell you, you people are crazy about your military. <laughs> uh, it's insane the amount of money that America has spent on totally pointless amounts of money. Yeah, uh, you know the Amer America has a military that is so big it's impossible to use. Um, <laughs> I mean, we're we're seeing you know we're seeing right now, uh, you know, with the Ukraine. There's you know, there's the capability to crush Russia. Mm -hmm. Right, totally exists, and with with so much redundancy, um, but it's impossible to do politically. Yeah, well, so um, we're pumping way more money than we're ever going to use into the military, and people are getting as rich as they possibly can on that yeah. military that military spending, and that's been going on, you know, since Eisenhower warned about it. You know, right, and it's interesting because if you speaking of Eisenhower, you look at that. He's of World War II era. And if mm -hmm. you look at World War I, that didn't happen. I mean, Franklin Roosevelt, who at the time was, um, he held a position that was working with the defense. Um, and it really wasn't the defense as we know it today, was trying mm -hmm. to come up with ideas and stuff. Like he, he had a proposal that got shut down that he wanted to have tons of boats. Basically, what would become like the Coast Guard that would be going off the coast, observing and stuff. That didn't fly. But he did get 70,000 water, you know, mines that they mm -hmm. would just, you know, hang and everything. And some of those were found. Some of them weren't. And, and friendlies got taken out by our own, you know, but yeah. that was it. And then it didn't become a business until World War II, uh, as you know, where it, yeah. it just became like, OK, this could happen again. Let's make sure it doesn't. But I also think the atomic bomb was the when that happened, it was like we are now on high alert constantly. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, and largely because of ourselves, and uh, and also and the other, you know the other thing is that when people people misunderstand what the term threat is from a military standpoint, and yeah. um, so of course you know ATIP and OSAP uh, you know you know framed their mission in terms of things like threat assessments and weapon development. Because that's how you get funding. Um, yeah. And it doesn't mean that they're saying, you know, certainly uh, someone like Lou Elizondo is not, you know, running around saying the, you know, the aliens are coming, they're a threat, we need, you know. But um, threat assessment is what the military does. That's basically their job. Their only job is threat assessment. Yeah, and, the prevention. You know, they do... Um, the Pentagon, 20 years ago, did a very, very detailed analysis of global warming as a threat assessment. 
they're not saying that the climate is, uh, you know, an enemy, but they but they they analyze global warming and what threats it posed to uh, the stability of uh, of America. So everything is everything in uh, if the military is going to be involved in it, it has to be from the standpoint of assessing a threat because uh, that's their function. That that says a lot about the military that they spend twenty years on this and they still don't think it's a threat. Yeah, well, the military does, but the government doesn't. The government doesn't. Yeah, the, right. the, mil- the Pentagon uh, outlined literally. They they, they described twenty years ago um, things like uh, global water shortages, uh, increased fire hazards, uh, grow- growing uh, mega storms, and uh, climate um, climate refugees. Um, and they were discussing this twenty years ago and presented it to the government and. Uh, and it was, you know, it wasn't a secret. As I said, I, I was, uh, it was outlined in great detail in a two-part CBC documentary, uh, oh, the same Canadians. show, Ideas. You can did a great two-part, uh, you know, um, analysis of that of that uh, threat assessment that was published by the by the Pentagon. But nobody in nobody in uh, American media picked up on it, and nobody in American government cared about it. No, we're watching mass reruns. Um, yeah. This is a question from Sample Something. How does the UFO community sort through bad data, uh, like government planting and false reports that can discredit the movement? Um, for the most part, it seems terribly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Not a good track as record. I said, it, it, as I said, it's there's two ways you can look. You can you can just reject things that that uh, you know. Uh, if you if you just have a knee jerk paranoia about things, then you you know. Then you then you'll just reject anything that doesn't fit the pattern that you've already accepted, um, and I think the I think as with anything with UFOs or anything at all anything anything you ever want to think about, your first goal should be to reject your own ideas, uh, to do everything you can to disprove everything you believe, you know, all the time. Yeah, um, you know, always be open to the fact to just just that you're infinitely capable of being wrong about just about anything at any given moment. And I think if you approach any idea from that vantage point, uh, you're going to look for better evidence. Yeah, I find that um, I do this thing where whenever something new comes along, you know, the um, the Internet, the interwebs, um, I always kind of gauge my enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. And so if I get really excited, I know I need to check myself. And yeah. I need to go, okay, hold on, hold on. <laughs> Emotionally getting connected to this because it's fun and it's this and that, and that's great. But let's really do this. And it feels like a lot of people, especially once they start getting into this field, which happened in a huge, to a huge degree after, uh, you know, December, you know, of, of 2017, you have a whole bunch of, of people, millennials, uh, Gen Zers who, who, who come into the fold and, um, and they're looking at this and they're going, oh, my God, this is if this is true, you know, how far does it extend out? And um, and I'm constantly like I'll have some people that will, you know, connect with me and say, oh, I didn't know you were into this stuff. And um, and I say, yeah. And then they hit me with a few things. So does that mean this or that? And I'm like, no, it, it doesn't mean that it means what we know so far. And what we know is still evidential in the sense that it's mostly witness. You know, no one has yeah. a leg that we know of 
in the private sector of a, of a, a leg of, you know, a tripod leg of one of the crafts that we can see mm-hmm. that's readily available. Yeah. And though that, you know, that, that, that may change in the near future. Yeah. You know, we may learn uh, more things. Um, and again, it's the same thing. I mean, there credible evidence from credible witnesses uh, certainly did not start in 2017, didn't start with David Fravor. Uh, it goes back to pilots, uh, radar operators, the, you know, the, 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 the UFO uh, flyover of the Capitol building in 1952 was yeah. as well documented as anything you, you ever would, should need to believe something's yeah. going on. Um, and, you know, with radar evidence, scrambled pilots, you know, uh, skilled observers. And, you know, and when you have debunkers going, you know, pilots aren't better observers than anyone else. That's where you go, oh, okay, so you don't know anything about what pilots are. Because um, they, in fact, are highly trained because it's how they stay alive in the sky. Yeah. When they're My traveling. favorite is when scientists say, you know, that to these pilots, well, you're not a scientist. And I'm yeah. like, yeah, dude, you're not a pilot. Yeah. So yeah. I think if I'm out there and that's my airspace, I know what's going on. That's that's my job. I think I'm probably a better, you know, gauge barometer of that. Also, when people talk about, well, there's supersonic, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, technology that we've had for a while, but the supersonic extends to this here to here. It doesn't go here and then left and right and then hold and yeah. then continue going. Yeah. It doesn't hover. It doesn't come from space to sea level. Um, yeah. Doesn't do yeah. any of the things that are that are that are clearly and provably observed. Yeah. And as you pointed out, this has been reported for decades. So it's yeah. not like these came out the same time, the technology. Uh, Ray Nash had a question. Uh, he wants to know, what is your favorite encounter of all time? What's the one that's like for you, the big mothership that's really compelling? Uh, favorite encounter? Oh, you mean historical encounter? UFO um, encounter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, I think the aerial school sighting was is pretty phenomenal. It's pretty amazing. Um, I think, and I think for me, still like the Phoenix Lights is still a pretty um, major, uh, you know, it, and 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 still frustrating because there were still journalists who will keep debunking with the same yeah. story. They were flares. And, uh, you know, and even the governor of the state has come out and said, no, they weren't. There was a there was a craft. And he admits that he saw it as well. Yeah. And thousands of people saw it. It traveled over a 200 mile stretch of Arizona and was observed for the entire the entire flight. And because the wind came into the flares and kept them all in uniform. (laughs) Yeah, because that flares don't (laughs) fall. They also don't They're Yeah. And their their illumination is constant. It's not <laughs> flickering in any way. Yeah. Um, and people say, oh, well, they're on, they have parachutes. Well, I don't know if you know this, but the one thing I learned about World War II was paratroopers that came in parachutes, they still went down slower, yeah. you know, so they wouldn't <laughs> die, but they still went down. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, you know, and all the people that saw it, uh, the eyewitnesses all said it blocked out the sky. Right. You know, that there, there were lights, but that the lights were organized, they were in a pattern, and that between the lights, the sky was blacked out. There was yeah. something there obscuring the sky. There was a solid object. Yeah, the, the, the one case that I also um, 
put up there, but I do put Ariel above all else because it's it's the real life close encounters yeah. of the third kind in my book. Is um the uh, O'Hare uh, Airport, Chicago? O'Hare. Oh yeah, yeah, the yeah. It's yeah. a great yeah where it punched the hole through the clouds and yeah and um and the debunkers are pretty feeble their explanations yeah. are pretty feeble on that in fact they're witnesses but more importantly it's the reaction that the faa had government had to this and trying to you know put the cap on this i mean yeah blatantly and um so sometimes it's like let's base something on the reaction of people not just you know what the event was but how are people responding yes the, well the notion that 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 you can just ignore, um, I, I mean, we can call it anecdotal evidence um, entirely. Um, and, and, you know, also the notion, you know, that we need, you know, it's like the, I guess the, the um, Neil deGrasse Tyson attitude, which basically seems to be, I'll study this as a scientist as soon as lay people have already proven everything. Yeah. As soon as non-scientists have gathered all the possible information and I can no longer pretend that it isn't real, until that day, I will not look at any evidence. Meanwhile, there's Michio Kaku, who, mm. you know, is a co-author of String Theory. who's actually doing things and creating yeah. theories and stuff that exist and are practical and being utilized, um, mm -hmm. are saying, no, he has no problem with accepting the fact that the government has come out and said, yeah, we're acknowledging that it's not ours, it's not our allies, and it's not our adversaries. So yeah. it's something else. And it's like, yeah. that's not a, yeah. Yeah, and, and again, it's the people who just insist on the, gov the government can only lie. No, there's no, there's no advantage in the government saying, they really are loath to say there's something in the sky that we don't understand and we can't defend you from. Yeah. It's not something they want to admit to. No, and they uh, haven't. They haven't forever. Yeah. No, and now that it, they're being forced to, uh, we should just accept that this is not their ch this is not their first choice, and again, yeah. and again, there's other governments that have done this. Like the French put out the Cometa report in the early 2000s, yeah, that basically was a a, a sort of a pan scientific military report over many years that came to the conclusion that UFOs are real and most likely extraterrestrial, and yeah. that came out a long time ago. And that was the that's the official stand of the French government. And we've been working in here in the states. We've been working off the Robertson report as our official report for decades. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, so it's, it's yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah. So that's the thing is it's um, I forgot what we were talking about now. Well, just um, like Neil deGrasse Tyson is. Oh, Neil deGrasse. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Michio Kaku. Yeah, he said, "Look, here's the evidence. We now have we have data. Yeah. Here's data. We've we've tracked these things. We've seen their motion. We know how fast. We know how fast they move." Uh, we know how they how they uh, navigate, um, and we know roughly how big they are, and um, and we know uh, you know that they can function in space, the atmosphere, and underwater. And we know this not from just anecdotes, but from data. We know this from well, we know this from the most skilled operators of the most advanced radar systems on the planet yeah the very best people at reading the data read the data and it told them that these things are coming in from space and going underwater and that they're making right angle turns at at hypersonic speeds 
and that they are uh, basically instantaneously accelerating and disappearing and showing up uh you know at uh at points that that demand a certain amount of intelligence about uh the practices of US military they're showing up at cap points yeah they're playing it it seems like there's a deliberate play going on or they're making a point um yeah. my mother saw a UFO in the 70s it's not mm -hmm. fair because she knows that I was the one who wanted to see it and yeah. anyway I won't and she got to I mean, be young I, in the 70s that wasn't fair either she Those did groovy times still needing therapy over that and so her her sighting was a craft and this is half moon bay california and she's with uh, my stepfather and they see a craft come down and go into the water off the you know ocean the coastline my stepfather being the hippie that he was ran out saying take me take me which freaked my mother out mm -hmm. um and so I guess I had heard about the, you know, underwater submersibles from, from way back then, but now I feel like that to me is an exciting frontier, you know, especially with what, um, you know, Dr. Kevin Knuth is doing and, and the UAPX mm -hmm. team and Kevin, everyone that, that to me holds more promise, I think, than some of the other technologies, because, you know, if you look at the planet, what do we have mostly of water? And yeah. as uh, Mike master says, Everyone think it's, thinks it's coming from another planet because they're looking up when they, you know, see these things. But we don't know where they come from and where they end up going. And, yeah. um, you know, the one question that I have is if you're if you're moving through the water faster than a torpedo, you're probably taking out some fish because they can't uh, get out of the way. Yeah, unless unless you're you're displacing as you're displacing the water. I mean, I guess the thing is that you're not just really displacing the water in a traditional sense. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> so the fish might not be affected by it at all, yeah. um, because there there would really be no sense of disturbance as these craft are going by. Yeah. You know, it'd be more like if you're you know if you're you know standing on a flexible sheet and and uh, something comes by and you and that sheet just gets pulled aside as you as it goes past you. Warps around it. Yeah. 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 But uh, you know, and that's the the. Even still, like I know, like was it? Um, like I'm, 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 I'm excited that Avi Loeb is getting involved, mm -hmm. um, but I still find it frustrating when uh, he tries to force physics, physics as we believe them to physics to work onto observations, as opposed to just taking the observation for what it is. You know, yeah. saying, well, this can't be what they saw because. You know, if it was traveling that fast in the sky, it would create a plasma that would be visible in the light spectrum. And then we, you know, but then we go, well, the observations from from our uh, our uh, best systems tell us that these craft uh, don't care about the laws of physics. That they are they are traveling through the air at hypersonic speeds without apparently displacing the air. Uh, and creating a sonic boom, so they they apparently aren't interacting with the molecules of air of you yeah. know all the, all the particles that make up the air. They're not interacting with it. No, but so, it's interesting because you know here's someone with his pedigree, and mm -hmm. he's still a slave to physics as we know it. And it'd be great yeah. if you did that disclaimer. Physics as we know it doesn't really allow for this, yeah. but physics that so we've been working on isn't that long, isn't that old. Yeah, so you can't rejigger the observations to match the physics. You just no. have to go with the observations, and if the observations don't jibe with physics, you got to accept 
that we don't know enough about physics. And that shouldn't yeah. be so hard when we, again, when we acknowledge that we've managed to mis misplace 95% of the universe. <laughs> that we, you know... Wait, I had it here. Uh, what did I do the with best of, The best of our science has been able to figure out 5% of what's going on in the world. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the thing that, that I always look at and I always kind of consider where we are going forward is that it always seems like there's a few people who are ahead of the mountain that we're all heading to and they're able to see peer just beyond that. And these are the people that that we make fun of. They're the Galileos. They're the yeah. Dr. John Max. Um, and so it, it, yeah, it kind of feels... Pastors. Yeah. And so it, it yeah. kind of feels Plus, like... I, a, I remember telling Skeptic Magazine once, I said, well, I, you know, it's good, to, it's good to question things, but uh, I have a problem with skepticism as a philosophy because the, uh, the wise skeptics of the past were the people that mocked Louis Pasteur and refused to wash their hands before surgeries. Or have masks on, which, yes. which really only have to do with um, splattering, um, you know, the saliva, the big, yeah. you know, stuff there. It's, it's not there to kind of wipe out everything. Yeah, which um, is like, yeah, it was the, the people that mocked germ theory were the skeptics of the past. So you don't yeah. want to be those people. No, can't see them. They don't exist. Yeah. 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 So, um, oh, we got another question here from Ray Nash. Uh, has Dave ever talked with Dan Aykroyd about this subject? Uh, no, I never have. Uh, I have talked with Dan Aykroyd. Uh, I don't think Dan ever remembers meeting me. I've met him many, many times over the years. All you comedian uh, actors, you don't hang out? Not all, uh, no. But I am very good friends with Dave Thomas, who is very good friends with, with Dan Aykroyd. And I, and I have talked about these things with Dave Thomas, who is also really interested in the UFO uh, story. D Dave Thomas... Some of you might know, if you're Canadian, you probably know uh, SCTV. Oh, yeah. Uh, he was also Bob, half of Bob and Doug McKenzie, the, you know, Strange Brew, and mm -hmm. was on uh, uh, was it Grace Under Fire. Yeah. Uh, sitcom back in the 90s. So he's um, a very good friend of mine. Also, uh, there was a question earlier. Have any other cast members of uh, Kids in the Hole had any sightings, seen anything? Not that I'm aware of. Not that I'm aware of. Um, I know there I, there are other people I know in show business who have who but who aren't public about it. Mm -hmm. You know, other people in comedy and in music that have. Yeah. Um, so the thing that I I find really interesting is it's it's always um, amazing how you'll find out that there are certain people, whether they're celebrities or politicians. Um, like who knew back in the day that that Harry Reid, who wasn't in his inner circle, was into you know UFOs and aliens. Yeah. But your buddy, Joe Rogan, mm -hmm. um, who was into them, and then he kind of got off the the UFO um, belief bandwagon, became sour to it, and then you brought him back to the table. Yeah, did... he yeah he lost faith. Yeah, he'd lost. Well, I shouldn't say faith because it's not a question of faith, but. Um... I guess he did a show for was it Discovery? I guess Joe was it Joe researches everything. I think it was yeah. Was. Um, but I think largely, I think that maybe the producers of that show largely just bought brought him people that were a little bit crazy because that made for better TV. They thought right, um, and that skewed him towards thinking that it was all bullshit. Uh, and then, yeah, and then 
uh, yeah, and it was one of these because Joe and I used to talk about UFOs all the time back in news radio days when we were working together. And um, so I, when I uh, was going to be on his podcast, there was one of these where I called him up and said, well, you can be excited to hear. I'm really, I've taken a deep dive into UFOs lately. And, and I was shocked to hear him go, ah, it's all bullshit. And, <laughs> what year uh, was this? This was just a few years ago. This was, uh, I don't know how many years ago. Before he had Bob Lazar? Uh, yeah, there? yeah, okay. yeah. He had all those people on, basically. I guess because we started talking about UFOs. Um, so yeah, as so I went on with with my friend Paul Greenberg, we were going on because we were doing a, a podcast at the time called "Don't Say Cunt," um, <laughs> which was uh, that was the, the okay, name I of won't. our podcast. And um, <laughs> and uh, so we were going on to promote that, and, and that's what I said. Oh, I'm really. And then I told him about. I listed a few films. One of them was Jeremy's movie uh, about mm-hmm. Bob Lazar. And I also uh, listed uh, uh, James Fox's uh, Out of the Blue. And I know what I saw as like films that he should watch. Because uh, this was back before Phenomenon was made. Yeah. Um, and... And he... And so then he went out... So like after I talked to him... like you know after we were texting back and forth about it then he said he like was up all night watching these movies and then he was back on board you know he did his homework yeah Yeah. and uh and i think those i mean i think it's hard it's certainly i think like right now probably probably the best primer as we say in canada not primer as you people insist on saying in america um for people who aren't aware of the whole history of uh, the modern UFO phenomenon, I think the, the phenomenon's a great starting point. Yeah, you know? and it's and it's modern enough and uh, and techno- technically proficient as a film that people won't be put off by it. Because there's other ones that are great, but people a lot of people would be put off by the more yeah. amateur quality. I kind of consider that the the encyclopedia of UFOs. If you want to know everything about UFO. Um, you know, some of the highlight of the, the, the solid cases that are backed up with highly credible people. That's a great gateway, you know, yeah. to get into it. Like the, like aerial phenomenon is the one yeah. about, you know, first level experiencers. And there's also the Westall school in Australia. Another great yeah. story about, again, like that one was, I think it was something like, oh, oh, that's right. I mirrored. Um, <laughs> the West, uh, which was in the sixties, I think. Yeah. Right. Late and that was like 200 students witnessed uh, yeah. UFOs touching down outside an Australian school, you know. Yeah. Um, um, Ray Nash has more questions. He just keeps manufacturing. He's okay. got a machine, actually, that cranks him out. And his question was, um, would you ever host a UAP or UFO documentary or live event? Um, well, uh, you're in oh, my yes. doc and you won't be in anyone else's doc until we <laughs> yeah. release, which... I- yeah. <laughs> I've been toying with the idea of trying to do a series, a, UA, a UAP series. Um, I mean, I'm, I often uh, sort of get uh, dissuade myself of it because I keep thinking there's so many people that are that would be much better to host one than me. Um, but then I think there there might be people who will listen to me who might not listen to people that are actually smarter than me and know more than me. See, I have to disagree. Um, not that you're not, but that you are. Because um, I remember when I when I spoke 
in 2018 at uh, the International UFO Congress Convention, I was talking to Alejandro Rojas and and he said, hey, you know, come out for the 25th anniversary of your um, film, the McPherson tape. And I said, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure that's a good idea. And he's like, why? And I said, well, because um, they, uh, I, I don't know what their reaction is going to be because I, I had done this thing and then it was, um, you know, co-opted and it, and it went out and was believed to be real. And I am the first and only filmmaker that I know of who debunks their own film. And I don't mm -hmm. know if they hold on to their beliefs so strong, it'll be brittle and break. And I'll show up and for 75 minutes, I'll be you know looking across from people that, that want to murder me. And he said, no, mm -hmm. no, no, they're great people. And that's how I kind of got into the, you know, uh, UFO space and the UFO community. And I spoke and I, I said, you know, I, I don't take myself serious. I take my work serious, but definitely not me. And the thing that I kept thinking that that I wanted to do in working in this space and, and doing these documentaries that I'm now doing is uh, bring levity to it. Mm -hmm. We can yeah. have fun with this because it is fun. Let's not kid ourselves. Yeah. And so I think you would be a, a perfect host uh, for a show to be looking at things and, and finding those, you know, those moments of humor and, and levity along the way because. Yeah. Well, I know. think, I think, I mean, as I said, I think there's so many people who are, who's, who's, uh, knowledge of the history and you know and who have actually done the work you know in the world um who i think you know people can you know and there's so many people doing uh great podcasts and yourself included and um thank you you know and martin and and alejandro uh rojas and uh ryan sprague um you know people doing like the only thing i can bring to it um is a certain a certain level of celebrity while I still have it because uh, it's oh it's fading um, <laughs> and and a certain reputation for being intelligent um, yeah. I can bring that to it and so I can maybe get people who might not listen to some to uh, to someone else might listen to me and then maybe I, in that way I could steer them towards people that that could actually enlighten them better than I can. Well, what's wise, um, if I may uh, say about you, sir, is that um, you spend most of your time on coming up with questions instead of coming up with answers. There's a big difference. Yes. Yeah. I think that well, shows an open... Questions are much more interesting than answers. Yeah. <laughs> Ans yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, and that was... Uh, you, know, I've, you know, I tried to tell my daughter, I said, you know... You never, you never learn anything from the arguments you win. Mm. You know, you come out of those arguments exactly knowing exactly what you knew going in. Right. But the arguments you lose, you come out knowing something you didn't know before. Yeah. And uh, and that's how I kind of view everything. I don't want to. I'm not looking to reinforce anything I already know. I, I'm looking to. You know, it's the thing. Like when I went when I was talking. Um, about my UFO, you know, encounter on Twitter, there was certainly a bunch of people who said, "Well, well, why aren't you out? Why aren't you talking to Mufon? Why aren't you getting proof on this? Aren't you? Aren't you concerned about this? Where's your evidence and all that?" And I said, "Well, I'm not here. I'm not on here to to try and prove anything. I'm I'm really just showing up because I saw something and I'm not afraid to talk about it. And I know a lot of people out there have seen things and they are afraid to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just trying to set an example of of." Uh, Someone who who saw something and is isn't afraid to talk about it. 
Yeah. Um, and hopefully just the very act of doing it. And I said, I don't care if people believe that I saw what I saw. Um, you know, or if people want to come up with uh, tortured explanations for what I saw. Um, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not of any interest to me. I, I just really wanted to, to, I guess, by example, uh, show that it's okay. You know, your world's not going to fall apart if you talk about it. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because one of the best bites, I think, in the um, new um, aerial phenomenon, Randy Nickerson's film, which you can now get, I think it's aerialphenomenon.com. You can mm -hmm. look it up, but um, it's available now and it's a fantastic, it's a documentary. It's not it's a UFO a documentary. Yeah. It happens to be about that, but it's, it's stellar. Um, yeah. There's a bite where one of the, the students, former students says, it's not my job to convince you. Yeah. I can't do that. So I can only make this available. I don't care to do that. I'm just sharing this experience that I had. Period. Yeah, yeah. Which is the best you can do because you know, um, I'm I'm a I'm a professional comedian. I don't have access to the most advanced radar equipment in the world. I don't, don't have access to. I don't even have access access to a decent pair of binoculars. Um, <laughs> you know. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna get, you know, and it's like, it's a, you know, and again, it's people who say, well, we've all got, you know, these great cameras in our pockets. I said, no, they're shitty cameras in your pocket, which is why <laughs> we used to get much better UFO photos when people carried film cameras around yeah. with lenses on them. Yeah, we're now carrying something that is designed for you to take a picture of your dessert, yeah. um, or yourself eating dessert. Yeah, and they're useless. You can't take a picture of the moon and convince people that the moon exists with these phones uh you know all you'll see is a featureless white disc yeah um so so i yeah I, i'm not you know proving these things isn't isn't my job either and again i i like that in that that documentary as well it's that you know it's just the the fact that people's lives have been disrupted by these events and people have suffered from these experiences and not not from the experience itself, but from the reaction of people who didn't share it. Yeah, uh, people have had their lives tortured. You know, have had people that they, that should love and care for them, like that the the woman in the you know that documentary. The fact that her parents weren't capable of giving her what she needed, weren't you know weren't capable of of embracing the this life changing experience that she had. Um, yeah, and that's Which people, is, and it's too many people have suffered. And it's such a contradiction because when I think if I was one of those kids, you know, when I go back to my um, elementary school, I think I'm out on the yard, I see something at that age. First thing I'm probably thinking is, um, oh, so there's this. My parents didn't tell me about this, but this is part of life. Oh, okay. Yeah. What am I supposed to do with this? How does this work? And then when you go to them and say, hey, so this thing we just experienced, and it's like, no, you didn't. Yeah. Oh, and, you know, welcome to, uh, you know, uh, not having your back, not, you know, yeah. needing to curb your beliefs and, and how you uh, share them. Yeah, and that, that um, mismatch of what you know your reality to be and what you're told your reality is could be compared to someone going to their parents and saying, I'm gay and being told, no, you're not, yeah. because that's wrong. So you can't be gay. Yeah. And living with that disconnect. Um, so I, I think it's a similar kind of to, to have that disconnect with your with your parents, the people that you trust and you expect to to uh, to lead you through discoveries. Yeah.
when they're the ones shutting you down. Right. Um, well, as we wrap up here, I do want to ask you, um, going forward, what do you, not, not to say, you know, take a look in the crystal bowl, but what would you like to, to have happen with the phenomenon? Where would you like to see it go? Um, I mean, I think I'd like, I'd like, uh, I would, I would like to know what's going on. Uh, but there's always the possibility that, that when we do find out what's going on, it might be terrifying. Um, right. you know, it might be, uh, you know, I had, uh, actually had very, I had, I had dinner with, uh, Lou Elizondo a little while ago mm-hmm. and Lou talks about that fact that he thinks humanity is at a pivot point and, mm. uh, you know, in, in human history. And if he's right, and we are, then the thing about pivot points is they can be very disruptive, and they can be they can be terrifying. Um, and if you know, and if we do find out what's going on, and it turns out there is something malevolent in it, uh, there's no turning back. Uh, so I'm not sure if you know. I think I want to know in my lifetime. Um, I know he's on my speed list dial of people that I'm ready to, you know, to reach out to if things get really weird. And, and so I can say, Hey Lou, so what's, what's happening, dude, can you <laughs> yeah. please forward or, you know, send yeah. me the, the memo, the email. Cause I, I didn't get it. Yeah, it was yeah definitely <laughs> getting to meet. I had, it was dinner with this yeah, Chrissy Newton and, and, uh-huh. me out and we had dinner with, with Lou and it was pretty amazing. Was Sean there? Sean Cahill? Uh, no, no, I haven't met Sean Cahill. Oh, you I'd should like to. He's great. Sure. Yeah. I would he's really great. like to. Um, David, Dave, Sir Dave, thank you so much for sharing, um, I guess over an hour and a half of your time oh, here. Really? It's, yeah, it, it's been great. And, uh, um, I look forward to, um, hanging out with you so I can say, wouldn't it be nice if a UFO just popped up <laughs> and hopefully yeah. you will say to me, take a look behind you. <laughs> yeah. Jerry, Jeremy keeps saying, I got to get back out cause I'm the summoner. So yeah. <laughs> Uh, All right, but it's good. To, it's been great to see you. It's uh, miss. I miss our uh, our hangouts in Los Angeles. Yeah, well, we'll have to uh, do that, or I'm gonna have to get out to the uh, the East Coast. So, right. thank you again, brother. Appreciate it, and uh, be well. And you we'll talk too. Soon. All right. Um, so, um, I just want to do another r- reminder here that that um, the International UFO Congress Convention is uh, happening. There's still tickets available, and uh, thank you to all the listeners. And Martin, continue to uh, get well, and um, I will see you guys possibly next week.